the more city center you get, the more exposed you also get. Welcome to Here There Be Dragons. This season, I'm taking you to Stockholm. I'm your host, Jess Myers. Episode 2, The Malms. The Malm is uh, extremely quiet. Narrow streets and sort of the medieval uh, flair <laughs> about it. There's a lot of small boats. It's too bourgeois for me. And this part of, of the city has been radically changing. Everybody that lives in the city center has money. There's something really beautiful about this island here. I have to admit something to you. Before I packed up my life, bought an absurd amount of warm socks, and boarded a plane to Stockholm, I didn't know anything about the city. Well, that's not true. Let me rephrase. I knew what my friends and colleagues told me. Winter would be dark, but cozy. Early nights, candles in the windows, and endless cinnamon buns. But the city itself was really a stranger that I spent three months trying to meet. Nothing made this clearer to me than the neighborhood I lived in. Whenever I met someone hey. new, Hey, how are you? Good and they would ask, Oh, where are you staying? And I would say, Oh, in Maria Torget. The response would always be some variation on Fancy. Bougie. You have to have a lot of money to live there. And I didn't know. The reason I didn't know was I wasn't paying rent. The apartment was a loan from the residency program at Konstnaushnamden, the Swedish Arts Grants Committee. But whenever I said where I lived, Stockholmers would get this idea about me. The same way I would get an idea about a New Yorker living in the West Village or a Parisian in the Marais. Honestly, living in the center gives you a small kind of power. Want a place to crash after drunken karaoke? I've got you. An impressive view for a Tinder selfie? I got you. A central meetup before a work event? I've got you too. I was on an island called Södermalm. From my window, I could see across Lake Malloran to the Riksdag, the Swedish parliament, as if it was floating on the water itself. Walking down Hansgatten every day to get to my studio, I would pass upscale thrift stores, classy-looking bakeries, and lunch counters promising everything from chia pudding to Japanese small plates. I heard hipster, I heard rich kid, and I saw the sheepish way that Stockholmers would admit to living in Södermalm, as if expecting the eye roll. When I overheard my studio mates complaining about the cost of jam cookies at the sandwich shop on the corner, I understood. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Exclusive. But it wasn't always that way. Just a few decades ago, the geometry of the city center firmly excluded Södermalm a neighborhood that boasted nicknames like Knife Soder and housed working-class families. Asenia was born and raised in Södermalm. When we talked to her and her partner, Ulrika, about it, they told us a very different story about the origins of the now bougie Maria Torget. So my name is Ulrika. I'm 49 years old, um, and I'm a professor of gender studies at Uppsala University, and I live in Stockholm, Södermalm. My name is Asunia Gray, and I'm 47 years old, turning 48 in May, Gemini. 
And uh, I work as a culture producer, marketing manager, project leader, club hopper, and everything between, querying the world. And uh, I live in Stockholm. Um, and I, you know, just as an anecdote, I remember my father telling me that Södermalm, when he was growing up, was like considered really dangerous. You know, the place where Asinja grew up, like around Maria Torriet, that was like a place for, you know, buying sex and drugs, basically, um, in the 60s and 70s, early 70s. You have to know that in Södermalm in the 80s, it was actually seen as a dangerous place. It was a lot of white working class, a lot of culture, a lot of activity, a lot of political left, like communists, dangerous for many. So I lived, I was brought up in a sort of like a bad neighborhood. I mean, you can't imagine that nowadays, but... To me, it seems unimaginable that the place Asenia grew up is the same place where I would get little gingerbread people with red current buttons before being jostled aside by herds of teens decked out in AirPods and dark athleisure. Not exactly what I would call the mean street. But the gentrification of Södermalm was largely pinned on a policy change. In the 1990s, Sweden experienced a political shift to the right. Under that more conservative administration, the public housing that many working Swedes relied on was privatized. Those that could afford it bought their apartments, and those who couldn't were pushed out. My name is Magnus Eriksson, and I'm 55 years old, and I work at Jaspis residency program as responsible for the design and architecture-related program. Magnus, a longtime Södermalm resident and lifelong Stockholmer, saw his neighborhood change drastically during this time. I've been living on Söder for, I don't know, maybe 20 years or so. And this part of, of, of the city has been radically changing maybe even the last 10 years or so. And, I mean, going back even further, in back to maybe the 70s, this was uh, a part of the city where Many people wanted to live as it was more of an alternative, but it was also part of the city where people didn't want to live. And I mean, you can, the typical ad in the papers was uh, swapping flats, was like, I want uh, a, a bigger flat and I have this and I don't want to live in Söder. That was like very usual. And especially if it was from people living in other parts of the city, like the east part, like Östermalm or Kungsholmen, or Vasastan. So it was like, not Söder. All these names that Magnus just listed are neighborhoods right next to Södermalm. We'll get to them soon, but all you need to know about them for now is that they're really posh. And today, of course, it's like the the opposite. Today, people really want to live here. And uh, I mean, this is, of course, a very kind of typical gentrification situation. Um, people with more money moves in because it's getting more expensive and uh, people without money leaves and, and a lot of the diversity leaves as well, which makes it, I guess, for the people who used to live there, less uh, attractive. Just as a quick example, the space where Magnus and I were recording this used to be an enormous tobacco factory. And now it's an office building hosting artist studios, including mine, furniture companies, and an ad agency. These shifts changed everything on the island even the name of the neighborhood. Today you hear, instead of saying Söder, that would be the old way of mentioning uh, this part of the the town, people say Södermalm. And of course, it, I mean, the proper name is Södermalm, 
Um, but back in the days, people would say Söder because it also kind of um, showed that you belong there. Just across the lake and north from Södermalm, there's another neighborhood, Östermalm. Again, we're going to come back to it, but for now, all you need to know is that it's quite fancy. At a certain point, I also heard that some people in Kungsholmen who wanted to be as pretentious as uh, the Östermalm people said, Västermalm, which is like, maybe it's a proper kind of way of saying or, or mentioning this part of the city, but it was also a very kind of sign of being wanting to, to kind of belong to this posh kind of community. So putting the Malm back in Södermalm, that's not insignificant. Just like in Brooklyn, where North Flatbush became Prospect Leffert's Gardens, or in Paris, where every cute little street is renamed Village, Malm is the name to attach the island to poshness. It's a real estate broker's most lethal tool in changing the reputation of a neighborhood. Ostermalm and Södermalm were historically seen as polar opposites in many residents' imagination. But as the working class has pushed further and further away from the island, that distinction is slipping. So you've been malmed. Yeah, we've been malmed, yes, of course, um, in many ways. So, say. Soder becoming a malm meant Stockholmers began identifying it as part of the city center. When we talked about centers last season, we learned how Paris's city center came to be called the city's stomach. A better moniker for Stockholm's center might be the city's wallet. Or, more accurately, what Stockholmers call it. Inanfor Tularna. Inanfor Tularna. Inan Tularna. Inanfor Tularna. Inanfor Tularna. There were a number of locks set up around the center of Stockholm. And there are still remnants in the names. So when you say Hornstull or Nortull, Tull means a lock or a um, tariff station. Inanfor Tularna means inside the locks, or the toll booths. Toll, or tool, it's a reference to these tariff stations. So that's where you're actually taxing um, goods coming in and out of the city. Hornstuhl and Skanstuhl are two locks on the island of Södermalm. For a long time, Söder was the threshold between the city's center and its edge. This was, I think, a natural growth of the center and still relying on the extremities as producers of goods. And, and so that kind of central core, which was for a few hundred years the city of Stockholm, in the um, advent of the industrialization and the growth of, of the urban areas all over Sweden, kind of early 1900s rather than uh, mid or late 1800s, which was late on a European perspective. In a way, Soder becoming a mom made it part of Stockholm's wealthy center in the minds of residents. As in most cities, where there's money, there's power. While the Riksdag Parliament made the beautiful view from outside of my window, just across the lake and to the east was an altogether different kind of power, the King's Palace on a small island called Galmastan. And where there are kings, there are courtiers, and you don't have to look very far to find them in the neighborhood of Östermalm. Historically, the central malms were the territory of kings, the aristocracy, and wealthy merchants, meaning today's neighborhoods, like Östermalm, Dormalm, Vasastan, and Kungsholmen, have a reputation for being old, rich, white, and stuffy. And when it comes to comfort, 
Many of the residents we spoke to preferred to avoid these areas altogether. Östermalm, Östermalmen, Östermalmen, Djurgården, Norrmalm and Kungsholmen and Djurgården. This area is like, you know, red. If there would be a colonial center in Sweden, it would be Östermalm. I also feel this feeling that I don't belong there. I feel weird there when it comes to class and, and also like color of your skin. The wealthier neighborhoods, which in a way always makes me feel completely alienated when I enter these spaces. They're also extremely homogeneous. Still feels weird sometimes to go there because it's like, you know, so white. <laughs> kind of reminds me of my difference, both in terms of, of class and of race. It might seem counterintuitive to imagine that wealth might lead to insecurity. But for many of the residents we spoke to, it was the implications of that wealth and the amount of power that it yields that made the feeling of exclusion so dominant in the city center. For Michael, the head curator of the Ethnographic Museum, the feeling of the center was so specific, Swedish couldn't quite describe it. Makes me feel uncomfortable. Why? It's too bourgeois for me. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, it's one of those places... People are so uh, uh, I can't remember the word now. Uh, no, the thing is no. The, the word the thing is the word doesn't exist in Swedish. Uh, it's uptight. Um, no, um, when you feel that you have it coming, I mean that you have that you own it. Entitled. Entitled. Yeah. That's the word. So um, entitled no, actually, you could say berättigad, which is very självberättigad. It's a very, very strange word, very mm-hmm. old word, ancient word in a way. So it doesn't at all make the same kind of uh, connotations. But not everyone feels excluded, and some find different connections to the city center. Some residents have strategies to avoid the neighborhood's stuffiness. Um, my name is Gustav Toftgård. I am uh, 35 years old. For Gustav, who lives in a lone department in Ostermalm, the standoffishness of his neighbors is ideal, especially since, as a tall white Swede, he can choose when to blend in and when to stand out. I feel unwelcome a bit where I live, in a way, but I'm very happy with that. <laughs> I don't fit in at all in this area. I guess it's something to do with some sort of um, feeling about or that you want to be special, mm-hmm. you know, so you don't want to fit in. What is it about the people of Boston Mom that makes you feel like you're different? I guess their looks, the way they look, the way to wear their hair, you know, in a back slick. Uh, <laughs> and they... Um, they wear suits it's much there's much more um, there's also an age thing there's much more old people which I also like it it is it's a traditionally like the bourgeois right wing people living there and uh, it's uh, it has very little to do with me in a way and I think that's why I like it others found their place in Sodermalm through different means not by living there, but by making meaning there. So I'd say where I felt most safe as a kid would be definitely Vasastaden because that's where I went to school for all of primary school. 
and all of secondary school was spent in uh, Kungsholmen. Um, yeah, I spent a lot of time there, have a lot of memories from not only the schools, but the areas around them, the parks around them, and the different sport fields around them. And I felt very safe then, moving around in those areas. So I came, I moved to Stockholm when I was 10. And then we lived in an area called Mashta, and it's far out. So it's like in the northern border, uh, close to the airport, Arlanda. We lived there, but my first memory of Stockholm was walking on Strandvägen. And it's like in the center of Stockholm, but just beside the water. And I was a bit, I was a bit sad that we were moving to another city. So my dad took me to Strandvägen, where there's a lot of small boats. And there was this boat called um, Sea Breeze, and Breeze is my name, Nasim. So he was like telling me this is the place for me, or I was there already, in a sense. So Strandvägen is like a, it's a magical street for me. Nostalgia is a powerful tool to access inclusion and meaning. If you feel the streets of today are not welcoming, some use the imagination to place themselves in a time of kings and courtiers to feel a sense of belonging to something bigger and grander than daily life. Galmastan is those old buildings. I love Galmastan mainly at night. I like going around taking pictures at night because it's lit, really interesting. And of course, it, the, the tourists are not there. I mean night, I mean like in the middle of the night where no one's there uh, except me and the ghosts of, you know, Gamlestan past, you know, or something. <laughs> this is quite strange, I guess, but I like Gamlestan. It has this narrow street, cobbled street. Uh, it has this very old history about it. You can find everything quite near without being in like a shopping mall. You can find some things to your bikes on one shop and then you go to another and you can find like a present for your partner and then you can go to another place and have a coffee. So it's a very convenient uh, area to move around in that way. And I, I think it was the narrow, narrow streets and sort of the medieval uh, flair <laughs> about it that really made it feel like something like home. In Stockholm, the use of nostalgia was often to the delight of tourists, but other groups used the same methods to terrorize and reject. Take Gamlestan, for example. It's the small island between Östermalm and Södermalm, and it's the heart of old Stockholm, famous for the King's Palace, traditional Swedish architecture, masonry, little specialty shops, crowds and crowds of tourists. But in the 90s, the Little Island's association with the aristocratic past made it a haven for the rising neo-Nazi movement. Occupying the streets next to the royal castle and intimidating anyone who protested allowed neo-Nazis to feel a sense of entitlement. The island made the perfect stage for white extremists to cast themselves as the rightful and only heirs to Swedish history and culture. In the late 80s, early 90s, Gamla Stan was not a place where you would go at night because there was a lot of Nazis and things like that. So that was a sort of, I'd go there during the day, um, but not after dark. 
pretty much. Uh, during the 90s, I was really scared as well. It's from when, from when I was 10 to 20 because there was a lot of Nazis in in the m- middle of the 90s. So I just remember me being more afraid than my parents, really. There was a higher risk if you would come like a group of uh, 10 teenagers, none of you are white. We're going to focus on the stories of two people. Michael, he's an Afro-Swedish man in his 50s, and he's the curator of the Ethnographic Museum that you heard before. She can edit. Yeah, I'll edit. Michael. Adelie, nice to meet you. Hi, I'm Jess. Nice to meet you. I saw you actually at Madonna. Ah. Jeanette. Yes, okay. You didn't really talk about it. You were the same. And then Paulina. Me llamo Paulina Torres Oikimeil. She's in her 40s and didn't grow up in Stockholm. She was born in Chile in 1975 and moved to Stockholm with her family when she was 12, fleeing the dictatorship in Chile. Sweden actually received a lot of Chileans like her, and the community is still pretty important to this day. You'll hear her speaking in Spanish. And when I was one year old, I went to Temuco, where I grew up content and happy until I came to Sweden. One date stood out in particular to both of them, November 30th. Definitely when I was young, the 30th of November was kind mm. of the big date. Mm. It was like it's the, uh, it's the birthday or the birthday of uh, an old king called Antolfta, the 12th, Charles the 12th, mm. which is like a, he, he was considered a hero king to the, to the neo-Nazis. Mm. So they used to demonstrate and there were a lot of fighting. Uh, but they were kind of run out of town, I mean, mm. by suburban kids. I never went to the protest on November 30th, or I never went out on November 30th. Years went by like that, and now I forget. It's no longer like that. But for about 10 years, I had it in my mind, November 30th. Michael had strong memories of actively avoiding Gamlestan as a young person. It's situational. I can't say that there's any space that I feel really at home in or safe in, actually anywhere in Sweden, ever. and. But on the, if you turn it around, I mean, places that I feel threatened in is very much to do with the people that are there, that are in this space at the particular given time. So an example is, you know, in, when I was growing up, when there were skinheads in the cities, yes, in the city center, yes, that was a terrible time. I, I didn't feel safe. Otherwise, uh, yeah, it was kind of depending on who and who's there, who's who's kind of defining the environment. And of course... Angry young men are always kind of defining space in a way. So in the 90s, there were certain areas like Gamla Stan, the old city, where skinheads used to hang, for instance. Everyone knew that. So that was kind of a place where you were really felt worried. Paulina had her own traumatic experience with Gamla Stan that made it all the way to the evening news and public radio. In 1996, Paulina was about 17 years old and was studying to become a nursing assistant. She was on the Tonobana with her mother and her grandfather. Slusen is a big metro station in Södermalm, just on the other side of Gamla Stan, where Nazis used to publicly gather. It was terrible because it was full of neo-Nazis, full. And there were hundreds of them, I promise, hundreds, all making the Hitler sign. And I said, the tunnel bond is not going to stop. And it stopped. Suddenly I see a beer bottle 
un, un, una persona neonazi, a neonazi person hits the window where my mother and my grandfather de, were sitting with the beer bottle. Y, y lo rompe y vuela en vidrio the y, glass shatters y, and a piece of glass falls on my grandfather's neck and hits a vein una vena de la, blood pours out like this y sale Así. Yo, yo, yo dije, aquí and I said crap and I think they're going to rip his head off and I look over on the side of the tunnelvana and see that they're opening the doors of the metro at the same time as they're breaking the window and they all come inside the wagon the neo-Nazis got onto the tunnelbana, and according to Paulina, they started beating anyone with darker skin and dark hair. In that moment, I felt that being a foreigner and having dark hair was dangerous because they were neo-Nazis. They came in and hit everyone else who was a foreigner. They hit Paulina, punched her, and kicked her with their metal-tipped military boots. They also attacked a young man who Paulina believes was either Arab or Turkish. Yo me transformé. Yo no, no, no estaba, no estaba en un I transformed. No I wasn't conscious. I was just in a state of defending myself. Otherwise, I knew I was going to die, and that transformed me. Yo sabía que me iba a morir. Y eso me transformó cuando vi que mi mamá estaba protegiendo a un then I saw that my mother was defending a young man who also had black hair. They were hitting my mom as well and tore off her fingernail. And I saw that there was blood, and then I realized it was coming out of the young man's head. The Nazis finally left the Tonobana, and Paulina and the others were able to seek help. The piece of broken glass that had cut her grandfather's neck had fallen just short of his artery. Paulina, her mother, and grandfather were obviously very traumatized by the attack. Paulina no longer saw Sweden as a place of asylum. A few years later, she moved to Northern Ireland. Her grandfather decided to go back to Chile, and her mother thought about it, but ultimately decided to remain in Sweden. Everyone wanted to leave. No one wanted to stay here. The only one who wanted to stay was me, but I went to Northern Ireland because it was too difficult. The trauma stayed. Trauma stays in your body, you know. It stays. Paulina filed a complaint with the police, but no one followed up on it. She was also contacted by a big-time journalist and producer in Sweden, Bose Lindquist. He convinced her to come and talk about the attack on public radio and public television. He tried to investigate why Paulina's complaint never led to an investigation. Together, they went to the police station. We don't have anything registered regarding that attack. Because the reporter had said there was an attack and someone filed a complaint, and so we want to know what is going on with the complaint from this specific date. I'm here with the person who filed that complaint, and we want to know what's going on. And the officer said they would check and then said they had no information and nothing regarding any So the reporter took out his mic, said he was from the radio and wanted to know what was going on and what was being done regarding the complaint. And the police started to push us, telling us to get out, to leave, pushing us out. And after that, I left the country. I felt an immense lack of protection when I saw them treating a white Swedish person this way. I said, if they treat him this way, imagine how it would be for me. Ever since the attack 20 years ago, Paulina still avoids the subway station in favor of biking. 
and rarely leaves Sodermalm where she lives. Like Sodermalm, it's hard to imagine Gomlestan, a place where I once saw an organized parade of St. Bernard's sporting mini reindeer antlers, was a place of mass intimidation and blatant physical violence. But no matter how neighborhoods change, old meanings and power structures remain, waiting for residents to invoke them again. Sodermalm is no different. While it's true that the housing prices have skyrocketed and I certainly couldn't have lived there if it wasn't for a grant, Pockets of the old neighborhood remain for those who manage to stay. If you had like a bigger map of Sodermom, then I would get very detailed about it. Um, there's places that I go that I feel like they make me feel like I'm in New York, for example. People are friendly or they're owned by people from uh, warmer countries. Chile or, you know, South America somewhere, you know. There's a guy here these uh, American guys had this place called Larry's Corner for I don't know if you've heard of that but I mean interesting people go there he has the strangest including my art exhibition the strangest <laughs> artists and musicians I mean from all over the world will stop and it's a tiny 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 little place and you you can go there and feel so comfortable being just eccentric or weird i discovered like the charm of southern model i think you have to like spend a little bit of more time there or go with someone that knows it because you need to find these places that has this essence of it to understand why it's like so hip but if you just go there for one day it can be kind of hard to see it because it's also kind of like spread out all these places so you can walk for a bunch of time on one street and not see anything interesting and then you go to another street and you see a lot of interesting places. <laughs> I mean, it is typical like hipster places mainly, but there's also like kind of niche things and it's uh, a lot of like art and you can find a lot of music. It is kind of a creative area where a lot of art and stuff is emerging, but it's also, you have to keep in mind that it's a certain group of people that get the chance to like, you know, it's like kind of cultural elite place. I was lucky to live in Södermalm, not just because of the great view and fancy bakeries, but because I met the people who showed me how it was, so I could see what it had become. From basement bars to karaoke to old-school saunas and walks along the water, I met the people who took me by the hand and introduced me to many versions of the neighborhood. But as grateful as I was for the introduction, something kept nagging at me. Why was it so hard to live in the city center? We'll find out in the next episode, Moving.
We are produced with the generous support of the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in Fine Arts and Konstnaushnamden, the Swedish Arts Grants Committee. Thank you to our senior producer, Adelie Pajman-Ponte, and our team of graduate students from the Architecture Department at the Rhode Island School of Design. Kimberly Ayala Nahira. Belal Ismail Ahmad. Daniel Guerrero. Uthman Aloa. Batu Kamara consults for the show. Corey Jacobs does the music. And Adrian Lilly is our sound designer. If you're subscribed to the Patreon, in our mini-episode, you'll discover a little bit more about Paulina's story, as we talk to Bose Lindquist, the reporter who helped in her investigation, and also discover more about the rise of the neo-Nazi movement in 90s Sweden. It's not too late to subscribe and get some wonderful mini-episodes and stickers. You can find all of this by signing up on our Patreon, which you can see in our show notes. And we also recommend you check out our website and the newsletter. It's filled with really fun content like readings, maps, and videos. If you have a comment or a question, record it briefly and send it to us at htbdpodcast at gmail.com. You might end up on the show. Last but not least, rate us five stars on whatever platform you listen to us on. It really helps people find the show. All right, until next time, this has been Here There Be Dragons. Absolutely loathe Gamla Stan. It's cobblestone, like invented by the devil. <laughs> and-